1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, in fact, he's been on the podcast before. He's a satirist for hire, Andy Zaltzman, the comedian. You'll know him. He presents the News Quiz on Radio Four. He presents the Bugle podcast, uh, general all-round satirical good egg. He'll talk us through his new show, where he'll take suggestions from the audience. ...on what he should be satirical about. We'll find out how that uh, works. First, though, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel. And it's a Monday, so it must be Libby Rachel, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Well, where to begin with the politics? (laughs) I take a week (laughs) off uh, to step away from the news and who knows where where we are. Right, so um, let's let's deal with the, the dead cat strategy... Do we think that Boris Johnson's announcement last night uh, was a necessary escalation in our war against Omicron or an attempt to move on from Quizgate? Uh, Libby.
2: Well, it did look as if he, he needed to kind of get up there and, and do his sort of statesman-like, seriously, I am talking to my people act. You know, it was a good moment for that. All he actually told us was that they were they were um ramping up the boosters, and uh, that's a good thing. I mean, they should be ramping up the boosters. It's obviously a useful thing to do. What I think is interesting is this real sense in it that there are things they will not now dare to do they might possibly close big venues and cinemas and theatres but I don't think they would ever have the nerve again to uh, do the household mixing rule you know that we had last Christmas you know where you where you couldn't mix I just do not think people will buy that anymore. It's an infringement on liberty and after the groping Hancock and the number 10 parties and so on people just won't believe it will not comply. So I think it's very interesting that that isn't mentioned at all. You know, when they talk about possible future restrictions uh, nobody's got the bottle to do that. That, that, That's how I feel it anyhow.
1: And actually I suppose, uh, Rachel, one of the things that we now have, which we didn't have last Christmas, is the ready availability of lateral flow tests. And if you are going to go and visit your family uh, as such, I, mean, I don't understand why every minister doesn't say this in every interview. Take a lateral flow test.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and also the vaccines. Uh, yeah. The situation has changed totally since this time last year. But I, going back to your original question, what's fascinating and revealing is that we even are discussing that, whether or not the Prime Minister is acting in the national interest or whether this is a dead cat. And that, <laughs> that in itself shows that kind of trust has broken down so much. I mean, th- there's no reason he needed to do that as a statement to the nation last night on television. He could easily have made that announcement in the House of Commons today. But it was, you know, he needed to change the record if you like and move on after absolutely terrible headlines for days and days about the quiz and everything else um but but the fact that that's even the discussion we're having is itself shocking
2: <laughs> I yes it is i mean there's this idea that i've got to be serious boris again you know let me remind you i'm sometimes serious boris uh it's, it's it, it does and, feel and very also, opportunistic
3: to make that point let me take out some nail scissors and cut my hair so it looks particularly messy <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, mean, I suppose, actually, though, uh, Rachel, if you want the nation to get up and get out and get the boosters, doing an emergency um, statement straight after Strictly on a Sunday night, you know, from number 10, will probably have more impact than a statement in the House of Commons at, at 3 in the afternoon, won't it?
3: But don't you think everybody knows they need to get their booster and wants to get their booster? The issue is whether the NHS can get the booster out quickly enough. Um, so that's really what's got to be stepped up. Uh, I think most people, apart from the sort of few vaccine deniers, um, want to get the booster as soon as they can. I'm not sure it needs the Prime Minister to do a great public address to the nation. You're right. It's the telling access,
1: them, not the... It's, it's the supply, exactly. not the demand, which is
2: the issue. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and Libby, how seriously do... I mean, I was speaking to Liam Fox a moment ago and asked him, you know, should Boris Johnson be confident he'll still be in number 10 this Christmas and next Christmas? And he replied, any Prime Minister who takes that for granted has not read the history books, which wasn't a ringing endorsement. Um, but uh, there was it. my slight feeling, having sort of watched the news as a normal person last week, is that part of the problem is that you've got the public who really hate Boris Johnson and want him out because he's been breaking the rules... And that, but his MPs are really cross with him and want him out because he's introducing rules they think are too tough. Is, is the 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 one thing going in Boris Johnson's favour? Is it that all of his enemies can't agree on why they don't like him? <laughs>
2: No, I, I have to say, if I had to make a prediction, it would be that he will find some apparently reasonably dignified or not totally disgraceful way of getting out of this. I do not think he's enjoying being prime minister. I think he wanted to be prime minister. He's doing it now. He will have had been prime minister. He needs to make quite a lot of money. He's got several families and you know, brand new young family to look after. And I think he's going to want out. And I think he'll find some way of getting out which seems in some weird way to be to his credit. I, I don't know how. I can't see how it'll happen. But I think the Tory party doesn't really want him anymore. The nation doesn't really want him anymore. As, as in Pride and Prejudice, he has delighted us long enough.
1: <laughs> wow. So, that's, so when do you think this will happen, Libby?
2: Uh, I think before the election, because everyone's going to want a sort of cleanish election. So they're going to have to move quite fast and uh, work out which of the others should replace him. Uh, That is difficult. So it may may not be till after the next election. But on the other hand, I don't think he'll get a huge thumping majority again the next election. So uh, it might be better to just have somebody else uh, carry the can for everything that's happened.
1: What do you think, Rachel? You've you've studied Boris Johnson up close for a long time. Is he he
3: likely to quit? Well, he is... He is a great survivor, isn't he? And I'm not sure he'll want to quit. But the thing about it is the support for him, it may have been until recently quite wide, but it's been very shallow. So, you know, the voters have never really loved him. They... they, um, you know, even people who voted for him, they, they did it to get Brexit done and because they thought he was fun and jolly uh, and it cheered everyone up. But it was never a sort of, particularly those former Labour voters in the red wall seats, it was never a kind of really heartfelt love of him. And for the MPs, they backed him because they thought he was a winner. As soon as that evaporates, um, their support for him will go. Um, so he, his position is more precarious than an 80 seat majority might imply. But he is a wily operator. He'll do what he can to wriggle out of trouble. But, 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 but Rachel, is he a wily?
2: Op- op- is, but rich, is he a wily operator? I mean, look at what's happened recently. He's giving the, the impression of someone who simply hasn't been concentrating, you know, and, and hasn't yeah, been concentrating that, that on a running the competent operator. He's,
3: a, he's wily rather than competent, <laughs> I'd say. He's definitely an operator. Um, but I, no, I agree. He's not. He, he doesn't seem to. He's not really focused on it, is he? But he, I, uh, I'm not sure you're right that he'll want to go. I'm not sure he'll want to be seen to be defeated and beaten
2: um he'll you know that's what i'm saying i I think there are ways of i think there are ways of sidling out sideways you know i I don't know it may may be Mm. uh, you know some more time with the family sort of thing you know i i I could i could i could just work out a way where he'll somehow make it seem like rather a clever thing to have done to Mm. have got in and got out again He, he may do that
1: he might be the first politician ever to resign to spend more time with his families Um, uh, in his situation, now I suppose then the question then becomes, um, where does the party go next? Loads of speculation, Rachel, the last few days about Liz Truss is the answer to the Tory party's problems. Another chaotic blonde, uh, with a reputation of changing (laughs) their mind on absolutely everything. (laughs) Prone to giving daft speeches (laughs) instead of uh, making proper policy, um, you know, (laughs) and and posing for daft photos. Is that the future? Is that what they need to get Boris Johnson out for?
3: I don't think it is, but you can see a scenario where it's Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak, and the Tory party always seems to go for the more... Eurosceptic, a, a more right wing one. So if she, if that I is. Rishi who... Sunak
1: could at least argue that he did back Brexit, unlike uh, Liz Truss, which he now uh, sort of tries to wipe from everybody's brains. That she yeah, was a Remainer. she it was quite teased, an enthusiastic but, Remainer.
3: She to. But yeah she 's positioning herself as the the sort of thatcher of the of our area isn 't she um, whereas <laughs> i, I don 't know i just can 't see it i, I can 't see her doing it well it would be a disaster, but I can see them going for her.
2: But, I mean, everybody everybody read Trevor Phillips this morning, who, who quite brilliantly points out that at least the Tory party is offering a choice of leader, which is three people from ethnic minorities and one woman. And the Labour Party can't get anywhere near that. You know, it, it's fascinating that the Conservative Party is that shark which needs to keep on swimming forwards and, and progressing. Had the first woman, the first two women prime ministers, the first Jewish prime minister. You know, it, it, it is, uh, Tories are an extraordinary animal. Mm-hmm. And, and as Trevor today, points out,
3: N- Nadim Zahawi um, is definitely one to watch. I'd have thought he got the vaccine rollout done. He's now at education. Um, he'll be the dark horse of a of a leadership contest.
1: Yeah, and actually it's interesting because it, I saw it was um, on this day in two thousand and five that David Cameron became uh, Tory leader, and you know so much has happened at that point. And you do wonder if if if, if K- the, the Labour Party is still at the sort of the David Cameron stage of uh, of its sort of political <laughs> reboot uh it's still um, some way off uh, but as you plugged trevor phillips's column uh libby i feel i should ask you about your uh column as well which is fascinating this because it's one of these things where we think that sort of newfangled ways of raising children is a very sort of 21st century thing uh but it really is
2: Oh, no, I, I just wanted to write after the centenary of Summerhill School. You know, the A.S. Neils famous free school, nobody need go to lessons until they choose to, and uh, so on, and democracy, the kids voting on their own rules and laws. It's still going strong, and it beat uh, an attempt by Ofsted to close it down at uh, the millennium r- rather magnificently, in a, in a case you can read about in the piece. But um, what is interesting is that people miss, people tend to rather. Uh, misunderstand it. I mean it's set against people like um, uh, Catherine Burbalsing, who has that, that very sort of successful head teacher and who's all for sort of discipline and the rest of it. But actually if you look at the kind of things Zoe Redhead of Summer Hill are saying and the things she's saying they agree about an awful lot about the damage of screen and television time to kids about the importance of consideration for other people you know in Summer Hill when they vote uh, you know they often they, they voted for instance to abolish all bedtimes and uh, then they they realized that was disturbing some of the other people's sleep and so they all voted to bring back bedtimes again you know so it's it's about a kind of early democracy it's not it's not what I would choose actually it's not what I did choose it's quite the school is quite close to us here in Suffolk but I think it's interesting and I like the fact that it's a little grit of salt in our rather sort of um you know value-added enforced tests kind of atmosphere in education but i mean rachel is the expert on education now yeah, I, yeah, I stand aside i just think that a little bit of grit in that bland oyster um, is not a bad thing and i'm glad that it hasn't been closed down that's really what the piece is about
1: um, yeah rachel you're chairing the, the times education commission it's been going for a while now um, how does the picture that you're building up um, how how do you think the uh summer hill school fits into that
3: well, what's so fascinating is I went to a school in the Netherlands um, a few weeks ago called Agora, mm. um, which mm. presents itself as a mixture of a sort of, um, what do they say, a university, a Buddhist monastery uh, and a marketplace. Agora is the Greek, ancient Greek marketplace. And um, there, too, there are no classrooms uh, no teachers their children have a personal coach they decide their own projects they decide what they're going to learn Um, and there's no sort of detentions or anything like that and it sounds rather like Summerhill in a way Um, but it's the new thing there's now sort of uh, 11 or 12 agoras around the Netherlands and one opening up in Belgium I think so it's sort of spreading as this great new idea but the interesting thing is that I think that, uh, there's too much of this sort of ideology. There's only one way of doing education. Mm-hmm. And actually what I'm finding going around lots of different schools is that there are lots of successful ways of, teaching children and that actually there are lots of different kinds of children who Mm. need different kinds of approaches. Uh, And the thing that I find difficult is when, um, you know, the traditionalists say, oh, it's absolutely appalling, only our way, you know, it must be silent corridors and, you know, detentions Mm. if you drop a pen. Um, But equally, if the kind of more progressive side say, oh, that's absolutely cruel and appalling, you mustn't ever give anyone a detention or tell them off that too is too far on the other way and there's a danger in education that the pendulum swings from one side to the other and actually there's a sort of you need to find the happy medium somewhere in the middle the mushy middle
2: indeed i mean i've been to one of these schools in in denmark very similarly where they all sit around on on stairs and steps and create their own little groups uh, of learning but the, the thing is when when we were looking at our children, you know, certainly at the primary age, at the younger age, it seemed to us that enough of the A.S. Neil philosophy about child-centred education and letting them find out and, and take delight in learning uh, rather than be forced to learn, uh, that enough of that had gone into the mainstream. So it was kind of okay, and our village school it certainly was. But then after that, government started interfering with every school, even the ones that were working absolutely fine, and doing all these prescriptive things, these literacy hours, you will do this, you will do this, you will test at this age and at that age and at that age, and everything, you know, that the A.S. kneelery sort of got eroded away. And there is
3: a problem. So Lucy Kelleway, who's one of our commissioners, she's, she's a teacher in a um, state school mm. in Tower Hamlets. And she says the problem is that it's so driven now by exams and by the mark scheme that any sense of curiosity has been driven out. So she was in an economics class and a kid asked a fascinating question about tax. She said, you know, we could have spent the whole hour talking about this and they would have learned so much mm. in a more Summerhill Agora way, driven by the children at one level but then you know guided by the teacher to learn lots about economics but it was impossible to go there because there were six more slides they had to get through for the gcse mark scheme and the kids that was all that mattered that was how she was going to be judged that was how the school was going to be judged that was how the children was going to be judged and i think that there's no space for any of that um sort of more uh the love of learning that's the, the danger is then you know if, if we all have to keep learning for our whole lives with the aging population um you know people aren't going to want to because if it's all you know boring and formulaic
1: and just, I suppose, just on the, sort of where we are with with education policy, and obviously, the, maybe maybe they're just waiting for your uh, commission to re- report, Rachel, but uh, it doesn't feel <laughs> like either the Conservatives or the Labour Party are doing any big thinking on the future of education. Maybe Nadine Zahawi is—he hasn't been in the job that long, but I mean, there's certainly no great thinking. In fact, it wasn't clear there was any thinking at all going on with Gavin Williamson. But on the, even on the Labour side, they've now got Bridget Phillipson is now in shadow Secretary of State for Education. It doesn't seem to be a big battleground. I mean, despite the turmoil of the last uh, 18 months, two years, no one seems to be ready to sort of rethink what's going on in schools.
3: No, exactly. And, you know, if you're really your central mission as a government is levelling up, education should be at the heart of that. But it seems to be all about buses and train tracks um, rather than schools. And the, the government have got a school's white paper sometime next year, they promised. But all the... Chatter so far is that it'll be fairly uh, small scale. I do think Nadim Zahawi and Bridget Phillipson are both more interesting and more reforming characters. They, you know, mm. they're they're both kind of pragmatists. They're not ideologues, so they will be open-minded. Mm. But you're right. It's awesome. a, it's amazing there isn't more competition for ideas on this.
1: Let me permit to <laughs> Sylvester there, and of course. You can read them both in the Times, if you Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Andy Solzman.
3: Ready to pop the question?
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Is it possible to be funny about anything which is happening in the news, or indeed anything in your whole life? Well, the comedian Andy Zaltzman is pitching himself as a satirist for hire. You'll know him as the chair of the news quiz on Radio Four. He also hosts the Bugle podcast, and he's currently touring in Australia, where he joins me now live. Hi, Andy. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Good evening to you. It's good morning uh, from uh, this end. Um, I, I, where to begin? But this is sort of nothing for for a satirist really to get um, excited about at the moment. <laughs> um your your current take on what is happening in uh british political life
4: well i've been um in australia for the last three three weeks or so um for, for my my other role as cricket statistician and it's it, it it's been mercifully cocooned from british politics which <laughs> is you know in, in, in immersed in through the rest of the year so it's been quite nice to to get away from it um uh, for a while they've got their own political problems here, But, I, I, I mean, I think there there seems to be an attitude of considerable bafflement towards what is going on in uh, in London. But it's been quite a nice time to be away.
1: How much of um, what is happening in uh, the UK and British politics and, and Boris Johnson, how much of that seeps into Australian news?
4: Not a huge amount. Um, I mean, they've got very dangerous spiders here, so they've got bigger things to worry about. Um, <laughs> so it's... Um, uh, you get the odd thing on the on the the news programs but it it's um it it's not a yeah it's not they're not lead items the uh, you know whether the the prime minister it was involved in or hosted a quiz hasn't really resonated yet with the uh, the Australian public who are still uh, busy uh, reveling in um, having thrashed England in the first Ashes test. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll come on. Sorry, we'll come on to that. We'll come on to that. And I just wondered whether. Yeah. you... I mean, we've only seen a still. We haven't yet seen uh, footage. Although, frankly, it's probably only a matter of time. Um, but I wonder how. Uh, I mean, as as a as a now a, uh, an established presenter of a news quiz, um, I wonder whether you're concerned about Boris Johnson. You know, now now apparently <laughs> uh, pitching himself in that role.
4: Well, I think. Maybe more more be the other way around. I mean, but Boris Johnson sort of sprang uh, part of his his uh, gradual journey to to prominence was from appearing on Have I Got News for You, uh, a, a um, topical comedy quiz uh, in the um, what was it early 90s, mid 90s, and um, so I'm very concerned that you know, me hosting the news quiz could catapult me into politics, which would be a, a bad news for absolutely everyone. So, um, <laughs>
1: I think I don't know. I mean, the bar's pretty low now, Andy. I think you're
4: probably all right. <laughs> bar, I think you're probably all right. The bar is the bar is not only low, Matt, but people keep crashing into the bar rather than clearing it as well. And the bar's <laughs> basically on the ground, and people are still failing to clear it. That, that's how low. The, they're going to have to dig a trench to put the bar in, and even then, I think uh, uh, there's still going to be some some uh, some red flags going up the
1: bars pretty low but they still managed to trip over it now i wanted to go yeah. right back to the beginning so you first started performing i think doing stand-up like back in the back in the late 90s doing comedy roughly the same time as boris johnson started doing comedy <laughs> how much has it changed since then because you, you know the, the whatever people might say about the sort of blair government it had a do an air of i don't know competence maybe or or, or sort of seriousness grown-ups doing grown-up things in suits and ties and that sort of thing, which meant that there was something there to sort of stand up. Whereas now, and I know from my limited experience to my own uh, stand-up shows, just reading out what has happened gets some of the biggest laughs. And I just wonder at what point yes. you, you think that that change has happened in the time that you've been doing it?
4: I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, it, it's, it happened to an extent with, with George W. Bush and some of the things he he said and that it was, you know, he became sort of slightly too easy a target comedically and, and, you know, satirically, the more important things with, with him were, you yeah, know, the, the policies and, uh, and and what he represented. But, the, you know, he became an easy comedic target, which led, you know, I think to some fairly lazy, lazy comedy. So and, and it's always, I guess, the way with with, you know, kind of big personality politicians that's. You have to, I think, aim to to reach beyond the the superficialities of it and look at you know the the yeah the topics that you know if you are in in political comedy then you need to sort of address those rather than the uh, the individuals. But it has reached a stage of such ridiculousness in in recent years. Obviously, you know, with, with Donald Trump was a you know a huge challenge for comedians in the sense that <laughs> although he was so obviously a comic in 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 a lot of ways. He also came at a time where comedy had changed in the sense that everyone could just make a bit of comedy and put it online. So there was an almost, you know, kind of a theoretically infinite amount of Donald Trump jokes. So to try and come up with something original, I think is probably more challenging than it was 20 years ago when it was, you know, stand-up and, and radio and the odd bit of, bit of television. So, uh, yeah, you have to really <laughs> kind of strive to find... I mean, with Donald Trump, I, I think I found I was the only person who printed out his brain uh, as a uh, came out as a cauliflower on a tripod on stage and stuck electrodes in it and got Donald Trump's uh, dismembered can you dismember a brain uh, Donald Trump's anyway 3d printed brain talking about 1920s cricketers and that was the extent to which i had to go to make sure that no one else would be doing my trump stuff
1: and when you're doing, I mean, particularly, you know, if you went back, what, 15, 20 years, you, you, the News Quiz, Have I Got News For You, those sorts of shows basically had all week, they had free reign. Um, and you'd, you'd get hit with those those jokes on a Friday night and people are like, oh, terrific. How much now is a problem if you think, well, so many of those jokes have been done by half of Twitter, or you know, <laughs> shared on Facebook. And you're right, you know, but even, even my gran can do a decent Boris Johnson joke. You, you need to work harder <laughs> at doing that. What what impact has social media had on? Everyone sort of thinks that they're a they're a satirist on on Twitter.
4: Yes, uh, well, it, well, like I said, it's a challenge to make sure that you you come up with something um, different. I mean, I, I guess the nature of sort of social media. Uh, Humor or you know, on you know, Twitter or Instagram, as it is by its nature fairly superficial because you can only go into so much depth in two hundred and eighty characters, so I guess you know on a radio show or you know a newspaper column like you write you've got you've got more scope to go for greater depth, and I guess that's where you can make sure you avoid um falling into doing something that's already been done, but it is it is definitely. Difficult And has become a, a rather different challenge, I think, creatively than, than it was uh, a couple of decades ago.
1: Does it help, do you think, that? Um, and I wonder what the impact the, the pandemic's had, that it's sort of uh, maybe Brexit and then the pandemic has sort of expanded the cast of characters. People do know who Matt Hancock is, for whatever reason, uh, in a way that they might not have known that Alan Milburn was the health secretary or Patricia Hewitt or, or, uh, or even Jeremy Hunt.
4: Yes, I think, I mean, uh, the sort of heightened nature of of politics, really, since the start of the Brexit campaign has has definitely, I think, created, as you say, sort of larger characters or, or, you know, more prominent figures than uh, was the case in, I guess, less (laughs) divided times. And, you know, COVID has has thrust people into the foreground who wouldn't necessarily have have been there otherwise and and possibly shouldn't have been there uh, otherwise. So um but at the same time those stories are now sort of so old and um they've sort of become so repetitive that again it that challenge of trying to find a fresh way of doing it and also you know from the thinking of you know the audience's point of view working out you know what kind of stuff do, do people still want to hear about about um whether it's Brexit or or covid and 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 you know has it reached a point where people just can't take any more comedically whatever side of say the brexit debate they're on so it's um yeah it's uh it's tricky certainly and i mean i've I've not actually done some live stand-up since the start of the pandemic i have a tour um next year i've got my first live stand-up gig in adelaide tomorrow night since um since before the pandemic And 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 to be honest i don't know how it will have changed in the almost two years um since since i last last stood in front of an audience so uh, it'll be uh, an interesting i mean and also it's just a huge it's a long gap i mean you, generally when you're sort of working as a stand-up if you have don't have a gig for two or three weeks you start to feel a little bit rusty so nearly two years people say it's like getting back on a bike uh i was always really really bad at riding bikes so uh this, this concerns me
1: <laughs> well maybe 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 you should try and do your show on a bike maybe go maybe that's the uh, maybe maybe that's the edge yeah.
4: you'll get satire
1: on a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I tell you what, in a moment, and, and if uh, people listen, because we're, we're going to try and test uh, Andy's ability as a satirist to hire. If you've got things you want to be satirical <laughs> about, uh, get in touch with me. You can text me 8722, start your message with the word Times. i will do some of those in a moment. Um, Andy, and I need to ask you about The Bugle, but particularly your bu- The Bugle started off as a, as a Times podcast many years ago. Uh, it's, 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 it's flourished, flourished since flying the nest. I think it's probably um, how we'll describe it. But I wanted to ask you about your, your fellow blueg- bugler, uh, John Oliver, who um, had to leave the country uh, to find work um, and is uh, pitched up in America. Uh, he was on The Daily Show and now he's doing uh, Last Week Tonight. Why don't we have a daily show or Last Week Tonight in the UK, do you think? Why, does it, why did John have to leave the country in order to pursue that sort of... <laughs> Sort of journalistic satire because we have this sort of like oh yeah Boris Johnson's an idiot sort of uh, you know I've only got news for you is basically still the only thing that really does that consistently. Why don't we have a daily show uh, in the UK?
4: Um, I don't know. I mean, there've been various attempts to to to, to replicate that from a British uh, in a British style. That's some more successful than others. I think. I mean, a lot of the you know the daily shows. Material comes from the political media, which is a a lot more heightened, I think, in America in terms of the polarization of its position, the pitch at which it operates, and so that there's as well as the politics, and obviously American politics is so massive, both domestically and globally, it pretty creates more stories than than British politics. So I think there's just more content, both from the politics and the media, which makes doing those shows. You know, you just have more more um, angles to go at, more stories cropping up um that said i think a lot of it is also to do with the commitment of uh of channels to make that kind of show of um uh you know to to take risks on a show that that might you know anger or irritate um uh, a good proportion of of a theoretical audience um (laughs) i suppose that's the the
1: the the sort of impartiality of of uk television means that you know once you're starting to get into sort of balance and have you done enough jokes about Labour I and mean, have you done enough jokes about the Lib Dems and all. Do you, do you get pressure from that from the news quiz? There's been lots of talk about you know, pressure with the BBC and um, uh, Nadine Doris seems particularly enthusiastic about complaining about wokeism and all that sort of thing. Do you get that at the news quiz? Do you have to tick off the jokes to make sure you've got enough to be sort of impartial?
4: No, I've never had any pressure at all. I mean, there's a sort of general understanding that you aim to try to be balanced, but they've never sort of specifically said anything to me about that, and I think you know, a good a good satirical comedy show will, by its nature, try to address different sides of political debates. Um, inevitably, the government will be addressed more than opposition because they're doing stuff rather than saying stuff. But no, there hasn't been. Um, no, I haven't had any sort of direct um, demands or requests from anyone at the BBC to um, to uh, you know to, to change the way that we're doing this. So either You know, maybe we're getting the, the balance right i don't know but um no they've not they've not interfered but i think you know generally in terms of you know making a a comedy show and yeah, you but know, a political comedy show then you know i want it to be balanced i want to try and get balanced you know different voices on in terms of the yeah. the guests i want to address lots of different stories from from different angles um so hopefully it will happen uh organically is that the the oh. <laughs> the term we tend to use for these things
1: <laughs> that's a very that's a very good bbc word organically so, Andy, explain how Saturdays for Hire works.
4: Uh, so, the, the idea, and I've, I've done it so sporadically over, over recent years, is for it to be a sort of interactive satirical show where people coming to the shows can demand the topics for me to address in the show. So it's a different show every night, people can email in to the show's email address, which is, if you are coming to the shows, uh, on my, my UK tour in February, March, satirise this at satirisforhire.com. And I then build the show around those requests. I also take requests from people as they're coming into the venue or, or sit, sitting in their seats before the start of the show. So if you don't get around to sending your email, you can still be part, part of the show. And um, so it's, it's quite an interesting challenge, comedically, to try and you know, write new stuff for every show, um and uh, it means that you know every show is is different and uh, that keeps it sort of fresh you know if you do a stand-up tour of the same show for you know 30 or 40 nights they can lose a little of its freshness um <laughs> uh, without giving away too many trade secrets um so um, but hopefully not I mean, at least you're doing it in different venues whereas the Edinburgh Festival sometimes you do see in the sort of third fourth week of the Edinburgh Festival slight deadness in the eyes of comedians so hopefully the show avoids that and it, you know people can can make any suggestions and I will uh, basically address anything so you know i guess a typical show would have stuff on what's happening in the, the news politically on big global issues uh, local politics and then it might have someone ask me to satirize carrots or um, um or something like that so it's uh, and there'd be probably some sport and quite a lot of cricket in it as well so it's it's a, it's a kind of show that has an inbuilt Balance. I can sort of leaven the the heavier stories with some some lighter stuff. And uh, but it's very much up to the audience what uh, what the content is.
1: I suppose it's an interesting. Um, uh, you get an interesting insight. It's not quite a focus group, but there's some sort of taking the temperature of the nation that you're getting. The sort of things that come up a lot, and the sort of things uh, that don't. Do you sort of do you feel like you're you're tuning into a particular part of the British psyche by? What they um what they pick <laughs> that you they want you to poke fun at
4: um I don't know really I don't know how broad my reach is most of my <laughs> audience <come laughs> are fans of my podcast so they uh, I I can't claim to ha- be a barometer for the nation um but but I, I guess you know in the, when I was doing the show a few years ago obviously Brexit came came up a lot but it is you know quite odd what be. I thought I thought when I said when I first started doing it it would be you know, I'll be getting requests about a, a lot of political issues. But actually, people tend to send really ridiculous stuff. Um, and uh um and I get sort of more political requests from the ones that are placed on the night by people coming into the into the gig. So it's um uh yeah, I don't I'm not I'm not sure I can really you know claim to have any great insight into the concerns of the nation from uh from what my audience suggests. Because if if that does reflect the concerns of the nation, the concerns of the nation are quite infantile. <laughs>
1: But maybe that, maybe that is the case. So, um, <laughs> Max has been in touch saying, uh, ask Andy what's more liable to collapse quicker, the England Test batting lineup or Boris Johnson's premiership, combining your two favourite things in life?
4: Um, uh, well, I'm not sure Boris Johnson's premiership is one of my favourite things <laughs> well, in life. It makes about um...
1: politics rather <laughs> than rather the premiership. Specifically.
4: Well, I mean, the, to be honest, you know, thoughts that Boris Johnson's premiership should, should have collapsed. I mean, he's played sort of you know, worse shots than Rory Burns' shot to Mitchell Stark's first ball of the asses politically. Um, and, you know, I mean, Burns' shot, you know, look, we'll, we'll cut him some slack because he hadn't had any practice. But it was a shot that really should have led to an instant resignation as he left the field in normal circumstances. We'll let him off. Because it was the first ball of the series, a lot of pressure and, and and no preparation, whereas you know Boris Johnson plays a shot like that politically pretty much every day and yet he's still at the crease he he basically does a w g grace he puts the bales back on and said, "I'm prime minister, and you you cannot give me out um because I guess I mean that's the thing with being a politician. you get the umpire's verdict once every five years rather than every time you do something wrong
1: uh so yeah, I think that- <laughs> That's a, very good, it's a, good, it's a good combination of your, your two favourite things. Um, now, <laughs> Sean, Sean got in touch, and I, I didn't really understand this. He said, I'd like him to satir- satirise the recent Log4JS vulnerability, some sort of web-based thing, and as it's Taylor Swift's birthday, maybe something about the re-recording of Red. Have you got any material <laughs> on Taylor Swift?
4: <laughs> well, so normally, Matt, when I do this show, people will email that in advance, and I'll be able to read up on Taylor Swift. With whose uh, oeuvre I will uh, confess to not being overly familiar, um, a re-recording <laughs> of of, uh, red. of red, red. Yes, um, uh, now
1: I'm aware of this. I think somebody somebody right. ended up with the ownership of her albums,
4: so oh, she right. re-recorded
1: okay. them all. So then she owns them again.
4: Right, it's not her re-recording of "Keep the Red Flag Flying" or the the Soviet national anthem, which would be an interesting no. departure uh, for uh, in the <laughs> oeuvre. Um oeuvre. Um, well. Um, Well, that's quite an interesting thing, isn't it? Doing cover versions of your own songs for legal reasons. I mean, I think that's pretty much human civilization eating itself. Uh, And I'm I'm not sure there's much further... When Taylor Swift is having to re-record her own songs uh, due to uh, some kind of ownership issue, I think we can conclude that capitalism has gone fully around the twist. And um, uh, I think... Yeah, I think watch what whoever buys the songs, whether it's you know whoever you know whatever hedge fund buys the songs of say Taylor Swift or or Bruce Springsteen or whatever should be then forced to re-record them themselves, and never be able to play the original. If they bought the song, do it yourself, and then we'll see what the real value of of that song <laughs> of that song is because they're essentially it's you know exploiting other people's work in a way that I'm slightly un, uh, uncomfortable with. So I think if you want to own that song, you've got to make it yours properly and not rely on uh, someone else's voice.
1: Yes, I think that's that's a top top piece of uh I think um a top piece of advice. Um although, you know, uh redoing uh, your greatest hits again and again hasn't done uh Boris Johnson anyhow. Uh Johnny <laughs> says Andy should give uh, Satirizing Times Radio a go, which feels horribly close to home. I'm not sure uh I'm not sure that's that's the sort of thing that I can
4: encourage. Oh right. Well I mean that's because it i obviously do a lot of work for uh, uh so we call a rival station um so uh, no we're supposed to enjoy competition uh, aren't we i mean in, in fact, i think um in many ways that what- times radio and the times newspaper maybe because, you know newspapers have had a difficult time over recent years radios have a, had a difficult time i think um just just swap really, and the times newspaper should be a transliteration of what's you would say on a radio show, and Times Radio should just read out crossword clues 24 7, 365.
1: <laughs> well, that is what, well, that is literally what Giles Coward does on a Friday. He does a crossword clue <laughs> and then gets really, really well, close. That when, that when
4: I, sta- that when I started the Bugle uh, with John at the Times, we, we did do an audio cryptic crossword. I gave one clue a week, and in fact, the Times printed a page to, to when we did the first issue in the newspaper that had the crossword. And I, I spent I spent weeks writing this cryptic crossword and um, it turned out the listeners didn't really like it. But there you go. Live and learn.
1: (laughs) Don't tell Giles. Don't tell Giles. Uh, Now, uh, Andy, if people want to come and see you, we will give you slightly more notice for their um, obscure requests. People want to come and see you. How can they uh, find out if you're coming near them uh, on your tour?
4: Ah, Well, um, by searching the internet, uh, including my own website, andysaltzman.co.uk, which I updated for pretty much the first time in 20 years. I've never fully got on board the website train, uh, but there are details (coughs) of the, the shows and hoping to add a couple of London dates. Uh, to those Very good,
1: very good and uh, given that you are in Australia and your reasons for in Aust- <laughs> the reason you are in Australia although you might be wishing you hadn't uh, bothered going, um, <laughs> your, uh, your, your your statistical prediction for how the rest of the test will pan out?
4: Well I mean let's be honest Matt, it didn't go very well in the first test <laughs> and generally when Australia wins the first test um, they also win the second, I mean I looked at the stats going back to the, the, the since the First World War I think Australia's won 15 first tests against England in Australia, and they then won the second test 14 times after those 15 wins. One exception was um, uh, 1954. Um, so uh, it's not looking too good. That said, the team that wins the second test in Ashes in Australia generally wins the series. So England just need to ignore that first step, focus on that second step and win this, uh, this day-night game in, uh, in Adelaide. That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live
1: Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at Lutonrising.org.uk.